morning, church. We're worshiping today in three different locations, and we're joined by folks worshiping with us online. Would you welcome them right now as we start our worship together? I want to begin with a question. What if God wants to use you to help build His kingdom? In other words, what if God has left you here? What if your reason for existence today is so that you might have a forever impact for the kingdom of God? What if, what if God desires you to get to such a place of surrender that you would say, Lord, whatever it takes, wherever I am, for your glory. One of my favorite stories about our community is the connection that we have with the great evangelist, Pastor Billy Graham. If you don't know that story, I did it until I began to talk with the leaders of this church about becoming the pastor, and one of them took me just a couple of miles away, right on uh, the river, on, on River Hills Road, where there is a historical marker, a plaque that says this. Near here in 1937, world-recognized evangelist Billy Graham would paddle across the river to the little island. There he would practice his sermons on the creatures of the river great and small from alligators to birds. Dr. Graham, one of the 20th century's best-known spiritual leaders and advisors to 10 United States presidents, acknowledged that he was called to serve the ministry while living in this city. In his autobiography, Dr. Graham refers to Temple Terrace as the moonlight, the moss, the breeze, the green, and the golf course. And he says, in my spirit, I knew I'd been called to the ministry. Dr. Graham, Dr. Graham attended nearby Florida Bible Institute, it later became Trinity College of Florida in 1937. I hear that story and I just think, man, what can God do through one individual who is completely sold out to him, who gives his life for the kingdom of God every day, wherever he is? And, and then I think about this community and I begin to think, Wow, what could God do through one church made up of a lot of people who are completely, wholeheartedly sold out for God's kingdom and for his kingdom mission? So here's my question. What if God wants to do that through you? What if this church, what if Mission Hill Church is the church that he wants to use? Are you willing to be a part of that process? What if God wants to manifest his kingdom through us? To manifest means to, to visibly demonstrate, to show his power, to illustrate for all to see that God is who he says he is. Well, I believe that's what he wants to do. So I'm going to show you that in Scripture. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 28. The 28th chapter of Acts. It's the end of the book of Acts. Now let me remind you how the book of Acts began. Jesus had gathered with about 120 of his followers. Don't forget that. Because he... He impacted a lot of people along the way during his three years of ministry. We know on several occasions he preached to thousands. He fed thousands. But after his life, after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, there were only 20, 120, that were willing to come around him and follow him. So Jesus was gathering with them. And he looked into their eyes like I'm looking at yours. And this is what he said. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in that moment, he then begins to ascend into heaven. Those 120 people, their mouths drop like, whoa, what's going on? And then... The mission began. Those people, 
filled with the Holy Spirit of God, began to tell other people about the kingdom of God. And the church was born. But we're going to read from the end of the book of Acts. After years of transformation. Here's the reality. All of us will come to an end. You understand that, right? This life ends. And so there will be a a day where, where people gather for each of us, big or small, and they'll remember our lives. Have you ever thought about what you want them to say? What are the three or four things that you wish that they would say in that moment? Those things are the things that are most important to you, by the way. I was with a group of pastors and their wives this week, and I reminded them that most of us are not nearly as important as we think we are. In fact, we think about that moment when the end will come and the nice things that will be said and how they'll be celebrating our life. And I told them, here's how it's going to look for me. There'll be a service, and after the service, some of my family and friends will gather in the church gym, and they'll have a meal together, and somebody will turn to the person next to them, and they'll kind of elbow them, and they'll say, boy, wasn't Pastor Paul such a great guy? And he'll say, yeah, can you hand me that fried chicken and some of the okra over there? (laughs) But we'll all come to an end. At the end of the book of Acts, we see what's really important. Last chapter is both an end and a beginning. It's the end of the account of the early church. Paul's been on three missionary journeys. But it's the beginning of the church that you and I are a part of. Those outside of the pages of Scripture who have carried the torch, who've been past the baton, It's our response to the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. It's our generation of Christ followers. It's Acts 29. You and me. The next chapter. The words we're about to read were penned by the Apostle Paul while he's under house arrest in a place called Rome. And here in Rome, under house arrest with a Roman guard nearby, he tells us we see what's most important to him. It's from Rome that Paul would write a letter to a young pastor named Timothy. He would write First and Second Timothy. It's from Rome that he would write a book of the Bible that we call Titus to another young man. It's from Rome that he would write to some of the churches that he planted, like the church at Philippi. And he would remind them that though he's in prison, that's not going to stop God from doing what God wants to do. In fact, listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this has happened to me actually to serve to advance the gospel. And as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. The three days later, it says in the book of Acts, Paul would begin to call together the leaders of the church. I want to challenge you today, church, to understand what's taking place here in Paul's life. He's saying that the discomfort that I go through on a temporary way, it's not going to prevent the gospel from going forward. If you look at the external circumstances, you would assume that Paul's miserable. But the reality is, he's going to tell that church in Philippian, in Philippi that he's learned to be content in all situations. So I want you to look at where that three days later statement comes from. Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 17. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. And when they assembled... Paul said to them, My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. And they examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. And the Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. And it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. 
Now, I'm going to stop there because Israel's in the news. What in the world is he talking about the hope of Israel? He's not talking about the nation of Israel today. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, this was a phrase that was used in the church, the hope of Israel. What was the hope of Israel? Let me tell you what it was not. He was not talking about more education that they needed. He was not talking about more legislation that they needed. He was not talking about who would be the president of Israel. He was not talking about who would be the governor of a state of Israel. He was not talking about who would be a mayor of a city in Israel. He was not saying those things are the most important things. He was talking about the hope of Israel, Jesus the Christ, King Jesus. So it says in verse 21, they replied, We've not received any letters from Judea concerning you. None of our people who've come there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. And so they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. From the law of Moses and from the prophets. And he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And so they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to you and our ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will ever be hearing but never understand. You will ever be seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. May God add his blessing to the reading of his perfect word. I want to ask you a question today. Could that last phrase, the phrase given to the Apostle Paul, could that be said of you? Could you put your name in this statement? For me, it would be like this. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Could you say that? That's the desire. That's what we want to be as individuals who follow Jesus Christ. That's who we want to be as a church. How did that happen? Well, Paul clearly created an environment in his home where people wanted to come and hear what he had to say about Jesus Christ. Sometimes you wonder why we do the way, things the way we do as a church. It's because we want to have that environment in the church. We want people to feel drawn here, to feel welcomed here, so that they can learn what it means to be a part of God's kingdom and to follow Jesus Christ. What you could say is that Paul was living out the kingdom of God right where he was every day. Are you doing that? You see, for most of us, we've got things really messed up. We think that it's only what happens in buildings like these when we come together and we're called the church that we make a difference. But what Scripture teaches is that God wants us to be on mission for Him right where we are every day. The old gospel preachers would say it like this. It doesn't matter if you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. Whatever you do, engineer, first responder, teacher, doctor, attorney, housekeeper, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God on mission for his kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? What's the kingdom of God? Jesus talked about it this way. Sometimes he would say, we're not yet there. Sometimes he would say it's already begun. For example, when he taught us to pray, what did he teach us? Pray this week, this way. Lord, your kingdom come in me. When he taught us to prioritize our life, what did he teach us to to do? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. 
Tony Evans, the great preacher, describes God's kingdom this way. He says it's the visible demonstration of the comprehensive rule of God in every area of your life. The visible demonstration. You know what that is? It's the manifest presence of the kingdom. God wants his kingdom to be manifested in your life. That's what Paul was doing. When the book of Acts ends by saying that he was proclaiming the kingdom every day for two years, he was manifesting the kingdom of God. Would you be willing to do that? That's really all I'm asking you today. Are you willing to determine to live your life, surrender to the rule of the king in every way, every day? Did you hear that? Are you willing to determine to live your life, surrender to the rule of the king in every way, every day? Well, what happened because of Paul's willingness, because of his determination? It's kind of an interesting thing. The Bible says that people just began to come to him. And for two whole years, he just stayed home. He wasn't in a church. He wasn't preaching a crusade. But right where he was, he manifested the kingdom of God. And it's like the preachers used to say, when you burn with passion for the things of God, people will be drawn to you because they just want to watch you burn. And they were watching Paul burn, and they wanted to hear more. And so one after one, they came to his house. Notice what it says in verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. They came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning to evening, explaining the kingdom of God. From the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Now, what does that phrase mean? From the law and the prophets, he persuaded them. Well, what was their Bible? To the, Jewish, to the Jewish people, what was the Bible that they had? It was our Old Testament. It was the law and the prophets. So he took what they know and he showed them the kingdom of God. He showed them the presence of Jesus in the midst of it. We don't know exactly what he said. But let's just assume what he might have done. He might have took them to the very beginning of the book. And he might have said, did you notice in the beginning when it said, we? You see this Jesus that you crucified? He was there at creation. And there at creation, he decided he wanted relationship with mankind. So the Bible says that God breathed into the dust. And he created a man. But he wanted that man to have a fulfilled life. And he realized that he was missing something. So God performed a surgery on that first man, Adam. And he took from his rib and, and he created a woman. And, and so when Adam woke up from the surgery, when the anesthesia wore off, he said, Whoa, man, this is good stuff. And it got better because there they were naked in the Garden of Eden. And God said, Hey, go be fruitful and multiply. Amen. But then there was one thing that God said, Don't do. And Adam and Eve did it. They sinned against God. And then I can imagine the Apostle Paul saying, you know that verse in Genesis at the beginning of the book in chapter 3 and verse 14 that says, So the Lord God said to his serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you among all livestock and all the wild animals, and you'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life, and I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you head, and you will strike his heel. And then I can imagine Paul said, Who do you think that's talking about? That was the hope of Israel. That was Jesus the Christ. And when he said it was finished, he was striking the heel of the enemy. But I bet he didn't stop there on that story. I bet he said, but remember what happened after the sinfulness. How Adam and Eve were naked and the Bible says they were ashamed. So what did the holy God do? The holy God, he killed an animal and he took from that animal the skins and he covered Adam and Eve. And he then probably said, and that was just a picture of what God did on the cross through Jesus Christ. Because through the shed blood of Jesus, he covered us. Of our sins. Imagine that might be how he started. That's not where he stopped. Because then he could have gone to Abraham. He said remember the story of Abraham. How Abraham wanted a child. And finally God answered in prayer. And said I'm not just going to give you a child. You're going to be the father of the nations. And God made a covenant with him. And then in old age God gave Sarah and Abraham a child. 
And they named that firstborn child, what you could call that one and only child, or the only begotten child. They named him Isaac. And one day, God told him to take that only begotten son and go sacrifice him. In obedience, do you remember how Abraham did that? And he, he took, and imagine how that conversation must have been as they were going up that mountain. Dad, what are we doing? Well, it'll be all right, son. Well, where are we going? Just hang tight, son. Imagine how Isaac must have thought when he laid him out on the altar. And as Abraham began to take that knife into his hand. And how Isaac must have said, Dad, where's the lamb? And how Abraham must have said, Oh, God will provide the lamb. And then remember that old ram in the thicket? And how Abraham says, God had provided. And he took that lamb and he, he shed the blood of that lamb instead of the blood of his son on that sacrifice. And then Paul might have said, hey, you know who that spotless lamb was? That's pointing you to Jesus. But he didn't stop there. He could have then gone on to Moses. And he said, you remember when Moses stood before that burning bush and there at that holy place on that holy land, he received that call from God? And how God challenged Moses to go to, to, to Egypt and to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. And how he did that in spite of his inadequacies and in, in spite of his fears and how God used those ten plagues. And then Paul may have reminded about the ten plagues and said, do you remember that tenth plague? Do you remember how God told Moses to tell the people to go get a, a spotless lamb and to Take the blood of that lamb and to put it on the doorpost and to cover that doorpost so that the angel of death might pass over. I'm sure they were just sitting there nodding. Yeah, we remember that. He says, that was the hope of Israel it's talking about. Because, Jesus, church, are you out there? Jesus is the spotless lamb. That's what he's trying to say. That's what he's communicating as he's going through and he's going through. But then he might have gone on to Moses and said, but Moses didn't stop there. As Moses was leading people to the promised land, they were wandering around the wilderness. So God sent him up on the mountain of Sinai so that he might get the Ten Commandments. But while he was up getting the Ten Commandments, the people were down in the valley breaking the Ten Commandments. So even though Moses came down with the commandments, the commandments weren't so that they could be right with God. The commandments were so that they would see they could never be right with God on their own and so in Leviticus he probably went on and said that's why they created the sacrificial system and that sacrificial system is is what God used to help his people be right with him in spite of their lawlessness he probably told them, hey, you remember the Day of Atonement? How the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go and he would get two goats or lamb and, and one of those he would take and sacrifice and, and he would have a ceremony where he was saying he's taking the sins of the people and transferring those sins onto the head of the lamb or the goat. And then he would take that sacrifice, lamb or goat, and he would take it way outside of the city and he would separate it from the people. Listen, as far as the east is from the west. And then he would go and he would take that other lamb or goat and he would sacrifice that lamb and he would take the blood from that lamb and go into the holiest of places, the holy of holies, and he would take the blood from that sacrifice. And you know what he'd do? He would, he would sprinkle that over that Ten Commandments just to be reminding that only the blood of the sacrificial lamb could cover the lawbreakers. And then Paul, you know what I think he must have said? I think he must have said... That's the hope of Israel. That's the hope of Israel. And then he could have gone on and on and on. He, he may have said, hey, Jesus was there at creation. Jesus is the ram in the thicket. Jesus is the spotless lamb. Jesus is the great high priest. Then he said, hey, did you memorize, memorize the Psalms of David? What about Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. By the way, crucifixion didn't start until 300 B.C. David wrote those words a thousand BC. Then he probably reminded them of how that chapter ends 
Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. But it says he spent day and night taking them through the law and the prophets. So I doubt he stopped there. He may have shown them the suffering servant in Isaiah. He may have shown them that Jesus was the weeping prophet or the new morning mercy in Jeremiah. He may have read Ezekiel and reminded them that Jesus is a descendant of David. He may have gone to Daniel and told them that Jesus is the one that's coming in the clouds or Hosea and told them that Jesus is the faithful bridegroom. He may have read Joel and told them that Jesus is the promised salvation or Amos that he's the burden bearer. He may have said in Obadiah that he's the one that is mighty to save or in Jonah that he's the forgiving God, that he's the one with beautiful feet in Micah, that he's the avenger in Nahum, that he's the evangelist in Habakkuk, that he's the restorer in Zephaniah, that he's the cleansing fountain in Haggai, the pierced one in Zechariah, and the son of righteousness in Malachi. That's what he may have said. But then he may have said, but God was silent for 400 years. And then along came a man named John. And he began to say, prepare the way of the Lord. Repent. And turn to God. And then he may have said, you know who he's talking about? It's the hope of Israel. It's the one true king. It's Jesus. Then he may have told them about the life of Jesus. The perfect, sinless life. How many times Jesus had told them that he and the Father were one. And then he took them to the cross. The cross where Jesus said in Aramaic the same words that David said in ancient Hebrew. David said, it will be done. And Jesus said, it is finished. See, Paul's whole life was focused on the reality that it's all about Jesus. Everything we do comes back to Christ. Everything in this book comes back to Christ. And then I can't help but imagine that Paul talked about his story. Remember his story? He probably said, I used to be like you. I hated those who followed Jesus. I didn't understand it. I didn't know the way. But one day I was heading to Damascus just to persecute some more followers of Jesus. And the Lord appeared to me. And I fell down and said, Lord, what do you want to do with me? And he changed my life. Now I've been through shipwrecks. I've been abused. I've been abandoned. I've been beaten. They've tried to kill me. They've kicked me out of towns. And I had to put up with a bunch of church people. But I've done it for the kingdom of God. His whole life was about Jesus, the hope of Israel, the promised king. Now, what was the response of that? We have it in the scripture. Some were like, a few of you, some were like, yes, that's, yes, where are we, sign me up. Others that said, said, no, thank you. The cost is too big. I can't do that. And others, it said, literally got up and walked out while he was talking. Now, I can relate to that because, you know, I never know if somebody's just going to the bathroom or they need a drink of water or what, but it's kind of, every, it hurts my feelings a little bit when somebody gets up and walks out or falls asleep in church or that kind of thing. You, you just never know. So wh- why did they do that? Well, it tells us. It literally says, while he was saying this, listen to what he was saying. 
Go to the people and say, you'll ever be hearing but never understand. You'll ever be seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They'll hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. He's quoting Isaiah 6. Jesus had quoted this same passage in Matthew. And what is he saying? He's saying, I've spent all day telling you about the hope of Israel from the beginning of the book. But guess what? Some of you got it, but you don't got it. Some of you know it up here, but you don't know it in here. Your life is no different. You've become callous. You're hard-hearted. <laughs> Some of them begin to walk out. Shocker. And after a lifetime around the church, I would say that's still true today. And we, we can check a box. We can gather in a room like this, in a space and place like this, and hear the facts, but walk out stubborn and hard-hearted without change. Man, don't be that person. Be the person to, determined to live under the rule of the king in every way for every day. But you know, there's a lesson in what takes place there. Really, it's the lesson that Jesus gave us in what we call the parable of the souls, soils. He's saying that, you know, sometime the seed will go out and the seed will land in soil. And it's amazing. It just begins to grow and grow and grow. And there's a beautiful harvest before you. And, and then sometime the seed will go out and it'll look like it's starting to grow. But then you realize it never, it never took root. And so it dies. And then sometimes the seed will go out and, and it's in rocky soil. So, so it'll grow, but eventually it'll get choked out. By maybe the cares of life. And he said, sometimes the seed will go out and it's kind of like that Dorito you're eating in your hand over at the beach. And before you can get it to your mouth, the enemy comes along and swipes it out of your hand. You see, there's a lesson that God's teaching us there. That the problem isn't with the delivery of the seed. The problem is the condition of the soil. The seed is the message, the hope of Israel, the gospel. The soil, the soil's our hearts. This is encouraging to me as a preacher, because sometimes I forget it. But here's the truth, it's only God that can save. It's only God that can change a heart. But our God uses us. Our God uses you. He uses me. So what do we do? We do what Paul did. We keep focusing on the kingdom wherever we are. Every day. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Can that be said of you? Man, what I've discovered is those things we're passionate about, we do boldly and without hindrance. Some of you, I'll be honest, your, your priorities are misguided because when it comes to politics, you can talk boldly and without hindrance. When it comes to sports, you can talk boldly and without hindrance. When it comes to your hobby, you can talk boldly and without hindrance. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, you don't think that way. Why? Because you're hindered. Did you hear the story a couple weeks ago about the tumbleweeds? Out west, the wind blew so much in, in one community in Montana that these dead weeds began to tumble around in the ground. And they gathered up so much that they would, in one neighborhood, 
come in front of the houses and keep people from getting out of the house. They were hindered. By what? Weeds. Dead, dumb weeds. Some of you are being hindered. Some of you are being hindered because you have a desire to shine. You know what I'm saying? It's all about you. It's, it's pride. You are the most important thing in your life. And you and Jesus and his kingdom can't be the most important thing. You can't do your will all the time and do his will all the time. just can't be done. Some of you are hindered because of your desire to recline. What I'm saying is you're lazy. You're just not willing to do the work. That's why in most every church, about 15% of the people do 85% of everything that has to be done. That's why the same people end up watching kids in our, our preschool and our nursery and our children all the time. That's why the same people are at the door greeting you every week because some of you never do it. Some of you are hindered just because you want to whine. I've heard a lot of this. There's always an excuse. I can come up with an excuse not to do anything I don't want to do. And here's the way it works in church most of the time. Man, I want to get unhindered. We we just got married, and we're going to enjoy our our young married life a little bit. And I'm going to get unhindered uh, maybe after, after we enjoy this a little bit. Then you get kids. And then you say, hey, man, our life is so busy taking care of our kids. I'm going to get unhindered when our kids get a little older. Then you start doing what we did, and you follow your kids around everywhere they go, to sporting events, to recitals, to all these different things they do. And you say, we're going to be unhindered for the Lord when, when our kids are out of the house. Then you're empty nesters, and you think, hallelujah. And, and you say, wow, we can go. And so you begin to go do what you want to do because you no longer have kids. And then you say, we're going to be unhindered after we enjoy this a little while. And then, then you realize, man, Man, now it's time. We got to make the money. We got to climb the ladder. We got to live out our career. And so you'll say, You're, we'll be unhindered when we retire. And then you retire and you say, man, we've worked all our lives. We're going to go to the mountains. We got to enjoy the leaves changing colors. You say, well, I'll be unhindered after we just enjoy life. And you end up never becoming unhindered for the Lord. The silly things, the dead weeds of life keep you from doing what God wants you to do. So that's how Acts ends. Verse 31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. The Apostle Paul. That's a weird ending, kind of. Why? Because this book's not about Paul. It's not his story. This is about the kingdom of God. And so what happened in Acts 28 was the passing of the baton. It was the beginning of our job. Let me see if I can illustrate that. But i got to back up a little beyond this moment. Let's go back to about 30 B.C. 30 B.C., Jesus is there with his disciples And he's in one of my favorite places on the planet. It's called Caesarea Caesarea Philippi. I wouldn't recommend going right now. It's in Israel. But they're in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, "Eh." And then Jesus says, understand this. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Three years later, Jesus is standing with those 120 we talked about. And he says, hey, you're going to get some power. And the power is going to give you boldness. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Then he takes the elevator up. The people of God, those 120, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the church is born the next day. The church is born on Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved, and the message of the kingdom begins to go out. Well, what happens? In 42 AD, Mark goes to Egypt. In 49 AD, Paul goes to Turkey. In 51 AD, Paul goes to Greece. In 52 AD, Thomas goes to India. In 54 AD, Paul goes on his third and most believed his final missionary trip. And in 61 AD, Paul goes to Rome as a prisoner and proclaims the kingdom. Does it stop? 
Nope. In 174 AD, the first Christians are reported in Austria. In 280 AD, the first rural churches in Italy. In 350 AD, 31.7 million Romans. 31.7 million Romans professed to follow Christ in the place where Paul was in prison. In 432 A.D., Patrick heads to Ireland. In 596 A.D., Gregory the Great sends Augustine to England and Canterbury and baptizes 10,000 people in two years. In 635 A.D., the first Christian missionaries go to China. In 740 A.D., Irish monks land in Iceland. In 900 A.D., missionaries reach Norway. In 1200 A.D., the Bible's available already in 22 languages. In 1490 A.D., the first Christians are in Kenya. In 1501 A.D., the Pope grants to Spain the task of providing religious education to the natives in the Americas. In 1537, the Pope orders that Indians of the New World be brought to Christ by the preaching of the divine word. In 1554 A.D., 1,500 new Christians are in Thailand. In 1638, the first Baptist church was started in Rhode Island. In 1671, missionaries arrived in the Carolinas. In 1672, the first Baptist church of Charleston was formed. In 1735, John and Charles Wesley come to America. In 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. In 1854, the Florida Baptist Convention was formed. In 1937, God called a man named Billy Graham to ministry right here in Temple Terrace. And just a few years later, in 1956, Spencer Memorial Church in Tampa started a mission in Temple Terrace that was first called Mission Hills Baptist Chapel but soon changed its name to First Baptist Church Temple Terrace. And in 2011, the First Baptist Church of Temple Terrace called a new pastor who was raised in a small town in South Carolina where those missionaries came. And as of November 5th, 2023, in the last 13 years, God has allowed us to see 1,200 plus people walk through the waters of believers' baptism in this church. One of those guys was a man named Muhammad. Muhammad came to this church because we offer English classes. Remember, you don't have to be a preacher. You might be an English teacher. You just have to be committed to God's kingdom right where you are. Because of the love that Muhammad felt in those English classes, he began to attend a Bible study that some of the students attended after the English classes. Pastor Zach began to talk to him about the love of God. He couldn't understand it. This concept of forgiveness just rocked his world. One day, Muhammad was in the hospital. Pastor Zach went to visit him, and (laughs) he again shared the gospel. And Muhammad said, you don't understand, Zach. There's no hope for somebody like me. Muhammad was from Iraq. He said, in Iraq, I did some evil things. There's no way God can forgive me. And Zach said, no, you don't understand. That's the message of the gospel. That's the hope that God gives to everybody. He does forgive our sins. He loves you. Would you trust him today and let Jesus be your savior? And that day, Muhammad trusted Christ. Muhammad began to follow Jesus and began to be discipled in his faith. And there in his apartment here in Tampa, he would bring people from the Middle East in and he would begin to share with them about his new faith. But one day, he decided to leave here and go to Europe where his children were because he wanted them to hear the message of the gospel that he had heard. In Europe, he got sick. It was during COVID. And after just a couple of days in the hospital... Muhammad went to heaven. But it all began because he heard the hope of Israel, the hope of the gospel through the ministry of this church. But that's not important because it's a history lesson. It's important because I want you to understand it's your turn. Church, it's our turn. Particularly our church. Think about where God's placed us. In this community, we're being told that they're building the largest mosque in North America. And yet here in this community, we have a church that desperately desires to shine God's light, to show his love in manifest ways. We've got to ask the question, how will the kingdom of God expand through us? Where will it go from here? We say that every time we meet, we we gather with people from 60 nations of origin. 
Will we continue to take the nation on? The message on to the nations? We have people that have come to Christ here. I had the opportunity to baptize one of our Chinese believers in a private ceremony that's now in the government in that land. You never know the difference you can make if you live unhindered. So what will it be? What if we proclaim the kingdom boldly without hindrance? What if we gave of that which God's given us boldly and without hindrance? And what if we surrender to the kingdom task boldly and without hindrance? Beginning right where we are. I've been trying to point you in this direction for a number of weeks. and In fact, in the coming days, you're going to hear us saying something that we want to begin to roll off your lips. It's understanding that we are broken people. We're creating God's mosaic in Jesus Christ by meeting needs, healing hurts, and speaking His Word every day. As you become a part of this church... It's not just so that you might check a box and and say that you were here as the church gathered, but so that you might scatter into your little corner of the world and manifest the kingdom of God every day. We do that by understanding that where we are is holy ground. Do you understand that? This is holy ground. But where you work, it's holy ground. Where you go to school, that's holy ground. Your neighborhood, it's holy ground. And you can make a difference right where you are. Like my friend Mimi began to make when she first went to Tanzania 10 years ago. She went on a mission trip and she began to recognize that there were children that didn't have anybody that was committed to caring for them. So Mimi decided to become that person. And now for the last 10 years, she's not only gone, she's given to make that sacrifice for God's glory. You understand it's holy ground when you do like my buddy Ryan. I got to know Ryan a few years ago. But in recent years, he really began to get on fire for the Lord. When I first came here, I would see Ryan, even before I knew him, I would see him running around his community. He wore crazy socks, but he was like the Energizer Bunny. He would, he would run everywhere. But in recent years, as he's really gotten on fire for Jesus, he's decided to use his gifts, his passion, that desire for fitness for the glory of God, just right where he is. You see, when you understand that where you are is holy ground, you become like my friend Bart. It's kind of a part of our family now. But Bart, as a Catholic, came to Christ late in life. He was already a successful businessman. But he began to realize and understand that everything he had was given to him by God. So he committed his business, a successful business in Tampa, to Jesus being the owner. And it changed his life. When you begin to understand that where you are is holy land, you're like my friends Manuel and and John who were coaches in public high schools in the Tampa Bay area. But they see their students as a mission field and they see those schools as a place where they can proclaim the kingdom. See, you don't have to stand on a stage like this. You don't even have to have a musical talent. You can proclaim the kingdom. By discovering your personal and your special calling. Mine may look a little different than yours. I've begun to realize that that my unique calling is that I'm supposed to leverage my personal brokenness. To inspire a deep belief in the God of the second chance. That's why I regularly do what I did last Sunday. Just try to be vulnerable and tell you I'm not there yet. There's a lot of work that needs to take place on me. But that's also why... 
this weekend, Kimberly and I were over in the panhandle, and we were just trying to encourage pastors and wives not to quit. That's why Eliel and I went earlier last month to Honduras, gathered with about 150 pastors just to tell them not to quit. That's why this week on Wednesday, I, I gathered with five pastors right here in Tampa Bay and just encouraged them to, to keep going. Because that's just part of my mission. But you've got one. How will you manifest the kingdom? It's time to offer the king your sword. In the ancient kingdoms, the way you would do that is you would take your sword and you'd hand it to the king. But, but listen, you would hand the king the handle. The blade was aimed back at you. And so in that simple act, what you were saying is, here I am. My life is in your hands. That's what I'm asking you to do today. Would you stand together with me? As you stand, would you just bow your heads? What does that look like for you? moment we're going to begin to sing. We always respond in several ways at the end of our time in God's Word. Some of you may just want to come and in an act of surrender just kneel and pray. Others may do like several did in our first service and just come and take the hand of one of our pastors who are already standing here and just pray and ask God to just take your surrendered heart and use it for His kingdom right where you are. Others of you may have prayed that prayer with me before we took communion and you began that relationship with Jesus and you just want to come and, and, and tell one of the pastors, hey, I'm now a follower of Christ. What's next? They'd love to talk to you. But have you heard what I've said? This is holy ground. Don't miss this moment. Let what happens here in the next few minutes affect what happens wherever you are the rest of your life so father that's our prayer in Jesus name use us for your glory we surrender God I pray that where there are hearts that need to be comforted you comfort but Lord where there are hearts and minds that have become callous like described in your word you would convict now in the name of Jesus Lord, that what happens in this place in these next few minutes would result in your kingdom growth in our lives and in our church in many days to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. You come as God leads. You step out, you come.